my ego took a hit because like all of a sudden I had never experienced Machiavellian behavior before. Like I'd been punched in the face. You know, I've had people say mean things, but I never experienced Machiavellian behavior. And that was shocking for me, but in a very meditative way, you know, I didn't take it personally. You know, I realized that shit like this happens to everybody and that by getting through this, I would be a better person, a better entrepreneur. And, you know, I have a unique education that I want to put back to work. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to the 81st Business for Good podcast episode. Before we get to this interview, which I promise is worth the wait, I want to first thank Ken Swenson for his very kind review on Apple Podcast app. Ken writes that this podcast, quote, has a special talent for supporting people's positive work. The show prioritizes impact over idealism. It's a good place to learn and get inspired. That's very kind of you, Ken. Thank you. And if you want to get a shout out both to you and for your review on a future episode, please feel free right now to go leave your own review for the Business for Good podcast. Now, onto this episode, which is one that's very near and dear to my heart. Normally, people like hearing stories about successful companies, but maybe we can learn just as much from those companies which didn't succeed as those that did. Now, don't get me wrong. Doug Evans has had plenty of entrepreneurial success in his life, but the company he's most well-known, sadly, did not end with a spectacular IPO or acquisition, but rather, it ended with his very high-profile company's demise. After running his first startup for 10 years prior to successfully exiting, Doug founded and was the CEO of Juicero, a company that sold high-tech juicers and subscriptions for vegetable packs to use in those juicers. This journey took Doug into the upper echelons of the Silicon Valley world of venture capital, where he raised more than $120 million, which would be a fortune even today, but especially a decade ago, it was real money. In this episode, Doug shares what his pitch included to have that kind of fundraising success, and how he became a media darling with Oprah and others touting his products, glowing reviews in the New York Times, and more. But like Icarus, Doug's success brought him a little too close to the sun, and a series of withering news stories battered the company to the point where they'd gone from a media darling to a media punchline. The result? One of the most promising startups ceased to exist. Doug opens up in our conversation about how he handled his rapid ascent into fame as a successful entrepreneur and how he handled his rapid descent when the company endured bad coverage and eventual ruin. Doug also offers his thoughts on what he wishes he would have done differently, as well as some unconventional thoughts, including why he thinks startups shouldn't issue press releases about their fundraising success. Hint, it just puts a target on your back, he says. We also discussed Doug's life after Juicero, including Wonder Valley Hot Springs, look it up, it really looks gorgeous, I hope to go there myself, and his now evangelical crusade to get us all eating more sprouts. His new book, appropriately called The Sprout Book, indeed did get me on the sprouts train, and today, because of Doug, I'm growing my own sprouts and enjoying them daily in smoothies, so he's already got me converted. I also want to give a quick shout out to my friend Simon Hill, whose episode on his Plant Proof podcast not too long ago with Doug inspired me to do this episode. In some ways, this conversation is a story about how one man entered startup life, rose to great prominence, got eviscerated in the press and endured a very public downfall, and then got back up again and kept pushing his life's mission to improve public health forward. 
I admire Doug's resilience in the face of such adversity and think that you will be inspired too. You be the judge. Doug, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Paul, it is a pleasure to be here. I love speaking to conscious business people. So (laughs) That's very nice of you. Well, I appreciate that, man. And I appreciated your book, The Sprout Book, which I will promote right here at the very beginning because I recently read it. I really enjoyed it. And it persuaded me to actually modify my life. So I went online, got myself some sprouting jars. And for the last couple of weeks, or maybe last month or so, actually, I have been sprouting. And it has turned me not into a sprouts consumer, but also a sprouts evangelical. I'm now telling my wife and my colleagues about how easy and awesome it is and how it's basically like fresh vegetables that require essentially nothing. It's just water. Like there's, you don't have to put any soil or anything. Like it's amazing actually to think about how easy they are to grow and how you have this like unlimited supply of fresh vegetables right there for essentially free after your capital costs of getting the jars, which were like 20 bucks for me are done. So I want to say thank you for that. And I really appreciate that you wrote this cool book. Well, look, I wrote the book because when I began this sprouting journey and we can get into that, there were so many nuances and I felt lost. And so I bought all the existing books and I felt they were dated and incomplete. So I wanted to write a book to be able to share the knowledge and the enthusiasm and the research that I gathered from being obsessed with sprouts out of necessity. You're doing it, which I love, out of choice, right? Because you live in Sacramento. You have access to all sorts of produce and gardening and farming. I live in the middle of nowhere, right? I'm an hour and a half from Whole Foods. So for me, being in the desert, I live near Joshua Tree at Wonder Valley Hot Springs. This is not only the Mojave Desert, this is a food desert. And for me to eat, right? Healthy the way I want to eat, fresh, ripe, raw, organic, living foods. My choice was to develop a complicated greenhouse infrastructure, urban farming for the desert or sprout. And I took six jars in one cubic foot. And within a month, most of my calories were coming from my little sprout garden and just blew my mind. That's really something. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, so my my wife actually gardens about half of our backyard. The other half is devoted for our dog, Eddie. But about half of our backyard is in garden form. And I think like, it's a lot of work. You know, I don't do any of it. I watch her and it's just a lot of work. You know, she's got the soil, then she's bringing in like all of her like veganic soil amendments and things like this. Like she's she's in there and it's money and it's work. And it seems to me it would be hard she enjoys it. So it's like a hobby. It's recreational. She really likes it. I think it's great. But it doesn't seem economical. Like the produce that we get out of it, which is phenomenal, is not, is got to be outweighed by the dollars. And especially if you count her time as money and what she might be making per hour or otherwise. So uh, whereas with sprouting, I mean, I, I spend, I would say, literally less than 60 seconds a day on it. And again, it was like a $20 upfront capital cost. And I get enormous amounts of fresh produce. It's amazing. So we can talk more about that later in the episode. I know that you are a sprouting evangelical. I saw on Instagram recently that you even tout sprouts as a popcorn alternative to, you know, when you're watching a movie, which I don't know, I think you got a hard sell on that one, man. But I'll try it out. I'll try it out sometime. 
But I do want to talk about stress. That was my best post. I'll just tell you, that was my <laughs> best post. 20,000 views, over 1,000 likes, hundreds of shares. Like people love that, you know, from an engagement perspective. Um, they love it. And it's true because to me, like that's what I eat, right? If I'm watching a movie on the laptop, sitting in bed, like what am I going to eat? I don't want to snack on something that has added salt, oil, or sugar that I can overeat. And I know like you cannot overeat sprouts. You just can't. The body will just stop you in your tracks. Say done, done, no more. Let me just tell people who, who didn't see this post of yours. So it's got Doug on the couch curling up to watch a movie. And instead of popcorn, he has a, a thing of sprouts that he's just picking out with his hands and eating. So we know that you're a true believer and it seems it seems very evident, but psyched that you are on this new journey with Sprouts. But before we get to that, I want to talk for a bit about what you've done in the past, because you know most people, if, if they know your name at all, they think about Juicero. Um, they may not think though, or they may not know that you actually had another company that you started and successfully exited before Juicero. So before we get to the Juicero story, and we're going to talk about that, of course, Tell us a little bit about the first company that you started with Organicville and why you started it, what happened with it, and what the exit was like for you. So I grew up eating cooked food, processed food, refined food, meat, dairy, animal products. Like that was my life until I was 33 years old. And then my entire family, except for my brother, died of chronic illness. And then I shifted when I was 33 years old from eating that processed toxic diet to raw veganism. And in New York City in 1999, there were no raw vegan restaurants, there were no resources. So they say when the student is ready, the teacher will come. In the middle of the night, I met my first vegan friend and we started this business called Organic Avenue to basically provide the food items and lifestyle items that fit through our screen of quality and integrity. And like we didn't add sugar to anything. Like we made 50 items every day and there was no added sugar. If we wanted something to be sweet, we would make like a homemade date paste. And so just to be clear, this was a store. It was not a CPG item, right? It started in our loft in Chinatown. And then we were having people like knocking on our door day and night. And we amassed probably $50,000 in inventory in the house. And finally said, okay, well, we better get a retail store. So in the armpit of New York City, the Lower East Side, we got a small 450 square foot retail store, put up our little shingle, Organic Avenue, and we started to sell cold pressed organic juice, salads, entrees, desserts, snacks, making it easy for people to conveniently share what we were experiencing, which was just mind-boggling, the idea that you actually could not just live, but thrive on eating raw fruits and vegetables. And so how many years were you running Organic Avenue? Excuse me for calling it Organic though earlier. No, that's fine. How many years were you running Organic Avenue? So it's really interesting. In the beginning, I was an investor, I was a co-founder, but I was doing my other graphic design, computer graphics stuff. And 
I was funding it and helping and making business decisions about leases and finances and the website. And I did that for many years until our sales went from $1,000 a month to $10,000 a month to $100,000 a month. And when we got to that $100,000 a month threshold, I felt like, wow, this is a business. Like we have repeat customers. We have a, a mailing list. We should open up more stores and step on the gas and like really make this thing, you know, a go. And then, so probably halfway in, I became full-time CEO. And then we ended up having 12 stores across New York City. And we went from $100,000 a month to a million dollars a month in revenue and growing almost, I think it was 105% CAGR. It was really a lot of growth with a lot of moving pieces and some things that I look back today and I think I must have been insane because we had a average shelf life of our products was three and a half days. Like it was ridiculous. And we used no fillers. So everything was organic produce and you couldn't buy organic produce for under a couple dollars a pound. Now, did you have investors at this point? Like, or, or were, you, were you entirely running off of the profit that you were making on that million dollars a month? We were running off of my long-term savings for a really long time. And then when I became CEO, that's when we raised some capital from friends, family, widows, and orphans, right? And customers. Some of the checks that came in were $5,000 checks, $10,000 checks. And we raised like a million bucks. And then the year that we exited, we raised $6 million. And then we sold controlling interest to the same investor. I see. And so you exited that year, which is how many years into the company now? 10 years of slogging. <laughs> but you did pretty well, right? I mean, it was a, it was a pretty lucrative exit event for you, is my understanding. Is correct. Absolutely. It was lucrative. It was good. All of our investors got a return on capital, you know, anywhere from two to five, six percent, two to five or six X. So, yeah, I was going to say probably not two to five percent, probably like two to five hundred percent. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. I mean, most people, most startups, let alone like actual brick and mortar stores, obviously fail. And for you to create one that was doing so much in revenue and succeed with a successful exit puts you in a very rarefied position among entrepreneurs um, in any sector, let alone the food sector. So congratulations on that. Thank you. I mean, the lessons learned there were incredibly valuable and I take them with me. They didn't really apply when I started Juicero because Juicero was literally like going from playing Little League into being in the NBA. And was that your intent? Like when you started, well, first of all, how long was it between when you exited Organic Avenue? Did you found Juicero? About a month. And so was that your intent? Were you thinking, I'm going to, were you thinking, I'm going to repeat my success with Organic Avenue or I'm going from Little League to Big League? What happened was I knew a lot about juice, right? I had 16 different juicers. We were producing over a million juices a year at Organic Avenue. And when I learned a lot about food safety and 
produce and supply chain. And so after we sold Organic Avenue, I still loved juice. I just no longer had access to our own kitchen where I remember I would get up in the morning and the first thing that I would do would be I'd go visit the kitchen and I would get this fresh juice coming right off the press. And I was able to watch that process. And then I went online and I looked at all the juicers available and I went to Macy's and Bed Bath & Beyond and I bought several of them and I tested them and they were just like a shit show. Like many pieces, hard to clean. The end product wasn't very like silky and smooth the way I liked it. It wasn't cold pressed. And then you had to buy produce and wash produce and store the fresh produce. So running a little kind of juice bar in your house didn't make any sense. So what I was inspired to do was saying, you know, I watched my friends who had Nespresso machines and Keurig with their K-cups and they were drinking them two to four times a day. Like they would just make these things. And most of them had juicers and they used those maybe twice a month. So the little red light went off in my head. The light bulb went off and said, if I could design a juicer that was so easy to use, then people would use it twice a day, like they just would. And I knew it wasn't about the juicer. It was about the produce and the supply chain and washing. And I just wanted to create that initially for myself and for my friends so that an organic avenue was a local company. It was in New York City. And to scale it you know, nationally, which would take you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to be the Starbucks and have 20,000 stores, So that didn't seem very practical. So that's where I thought like, okay, if we can take what we know about the supply chain, we know about food safety, we could create the packaging, we could buy the produce, we could triple wash it, we could dice it, slice it, chop it, shred it, put it into individual packs with the cheesecloth membrane to act as the strainer and then create a low cost, and I say low cost, $700, which was the original price of Juicero, was one quarter of the cost of the nearest cold press that was available to the market. So to me, $700 was low cost and for what it did. And then it would be really easy to scale this business. What I didn't know was how hard it was to do hardware, how hard it was to do sustainable packaging, how hard it was to create a facility that had standards where you're in food, the food business. We were swabbing 100 times a week, making sure there was no E. coli, listeria, salmonella, et cetera, in the plant. We were running 111,000 square foot lead gold certified processing facility that was more than 50% refrigeration and freezing. Hey, Doug, sorry to interrupt you, but you know, I want to just go back in the story a moment because you're, you're getting to this huge facility, lots of technology, but 
you had to raise the money to go there. So you had this idea, you wanted to create a really awesome juicer that would be the cheapest cold press juicer on the market at the time. And you had enormous success pitching this to Google Ventures, to Kleiner Perkins. Like you went into the upper echelon of the Silicon Valley venture capital world and succeeded in, in raising more than $100 million. So what was the pitch that was so successful for you that led these titans of the venture capital industry to think, yes, you know, this is the guy I want to back? Hey, Paul, do you allow profanity on your show? <laughs> well, you already said shit show, so you can go ahead already. <laughs> okay. Uh, Paul, I am not here to fuck around. Okay. So I had this vision for Juicero. I built a prototype, which the prototype was Rube Goldberg. It was welded in a Chinese kitchen supply place on the Bowery and Canal in New York City. But it worked. And then I took the same produce and process that would go into how I made juice at Organic Avenue, except the invention was taking the produce, putting it in the cheesecloth, and our patents were around the cheesecloth and the produce being inside an outer pack with a a spout. So when you put this pack of produce in the machine, you could make the juice and remove it with no cleaning. So it was a magical experience. So when I had that prototype that worked, it was blowing people's minds away. But it wasn't just the machine, it was what I was putting into the machine, which was those produce packs. And then I went to, and I never heard of what an industrial designer was. So you got to understand my background. I never went to college. I wrote graffiti as a teenager. I joined the 82nd Airborne when I was 17 years old. And then I just hustled. So there was a whole level of business and industries and specialties that I didn't know about. But I was showing this to people, smart people, and they were drinking the juice. And you know, I asked, like, how do you get something designed? And someone said, oh, you know, there's a company called IDEO and they do industrial design and product design and you should go talk to them. And then someone mentioned Eve Bahar and frog design. And so I started to research and then I found an industrial design firm and they made beautiful renderings of what the machine could look like. So then I had looks like 3D renderings that looked real. And then I had a works like machine. And then I had produce and recipes for juice. So my pitch would involve bringing in this Rube Goldberg machine, bringing in beautiful 3D renderings, bringing a cooler with ice packs and these produce packs in prototype form, right? Which could have been in the early stage, a Ziploc bag with cheesecloth inside with a bunch of produce that I shredded and diced and chopped with a food processor and put it inside. And I would show up wearing sandals, looking the way I look today, right? Just, you know, 10 years younger. And I would say, hold on to your seat, right? And then I would bring the best juice 
that was available on the market. The press juicery, blueprint, suja, evolution fresh, all of the top juices that were on the market that were being sold for five to ten dollars each. And then I would bring Juicero. And I would press the button, you know, it would make loud noise, but investors can see past the prototype. And then they would taste the juice and they would go, oh my God, this is incredible. No additives, no preservatives, no pasteurization, right? Every juice that's in a bottle is pasteurized, either using heat or cold or pressure or chemicals to kill the microbiological um, load, right? And reduce it by 5 million to one. So that was the, the juice, FDA, USDA juice requirement. Juice in a bottle or a jar uh, needs to have a 5 million to one reduction. And for me, I tasted that juice and there was no way I wanted to drink it the stuff that was in a bottle. It just was beyond what I wanted. I wanted fresh. Like I wanted fresh. And so I said, I'm going to make fresh. And, you know, that was the story. So when people tasted it, they wanted to be a part of it. So I would pass the hat around and, you know, my seed round was $4 million. And then when I started to bring on the team, it became very clear and apparent to me that we needed to have very extensive resources to do the sustainable packaging, to do the food science, to do the software, to create the facility, because there was no facility that could do this. And it just, you know, all of a sudden, like the necessity of the manifestation of the business idea required resources beyond anything that my wildest dreams could handle. But I was up for the ride. All right. You, you raised that $4 million seed round. And I know you had this like hypersonic growth. You had Oprah touting the Juicero. You were really flying high. So how did, did you have like a PR agency that was helping you sell this? So was it just so the product was so good it sold itself? Like how did you go from this guy in sandals in Silicon Valley passing a hat around after showing them this loud machine to having Oprah using your product? You know, a lot of work and a lot of time to develop all of these various channels. So we had PR and PR is a double-edged sword. Most PR money is wasted, right? You get people that have had success. And what I realize now, similar to raising capital, it's like getting PR. If you've got something great, you tell that story and you make the phone calls, you get the meetings, you have the persistence and resilience, and then people will write about it. Like we were featured on the front page of the New York Times business section. The problem with that, just FYI, is that if someone doesn't resonate with what you're doing, your article could be front and center, and it could be great, it could be neutral, or it could be snarky, or it could be bad, right? It could be a hit job, and you never know. 
So I just did my thing. And Oprah, you always hear about the Oprah effect, right? And what Oprah does for businesses, et cetera. She was like on my list, my manifestation. I didn't have like a vision board per se, but I knew that Oprah had her favorite things, which we were invited to be part of. Oprah had great reach. So I looked at the six degrees of connection and said, how am I going to get in front of Oprah? And I got in front of Oprah, blew her mind away. And we had 12 professional sports teams having Juicero in the locker rooms. We were at this whole celebrity list. We were inside of Whole Foods in Southern California, growing 20%, 30% month over month, that the product worked and the people who used it loved it. The problem was, realistically, that the rest of the world, call it the other 96% of the people who had money, who had influence, who had media, couldn't get it. They're like, huh? Why would anyone spend $10 on a juice? Huh? If someone couldn't get that a cold-pressed organic juice was worth $10, because there was no fresh, then the Juicero at $7 made no sense. The machine at $700 or $400 made no sense. So the rest of the world is eating cooked food, processed food, refined food, meat, dairy, animal products, smoking cigarettes. Like two out of three of Americans are overweight and obese. So you get this world that Like I'm preaching not to the choir. So Oprah loved it because she knew about health and she cared about health. And Gwyneth Paltrow loved it. She put it on the front of Goop and called it the best product of 2016. And it was only January. Like in the first month, she called the year. And so the challenge is the rest of the world and the rest of the country didn't get it. And some people took grave offense at our success and they wanted to take us down. There's no doubt, uh, you know, look, there's a a saying that the spouting whale was the one who gets harpooned or the tallest tree is the one that gets cut down, right? So you hadn't had this rapid ascent, you wouldn't have people who were saying, hey, let's try to, as you said, bring this guy down. But before we get to that, I do want to ask you, Doug, so, you know, you went from leading a life of you know, you had had financial success, but you weren't exactly a, a household name by any means to now being on uh, you know the New York Times business front cover to Gwyneth Paltrow and Oprah, like how did this, if it did, change you, and how did you handle this sudden shove into the national spotlight with what you were doing? I could tell you one thing: it didn't change my wardrobe. <laughs> it didn't change what I ate. It didn't change my car. Right? I still have the 2007 Prius that I bought when. I was running Organic Avenue to go to the various stores. So one thing for me is that the money didn't change my life, right? During Jutsera, I still lived in a like relatively low-cost apartment in San Francisco. And what makes me happy is being in flow and doing things that are contributing to making the world a better place. And that's so trite to say. But what Juicero was about for me was 
U.S. dietary guidelines recommend 7 to 13 servings of fruits and vegetables every day. The average American was consuming less than one. And I had great success in my own health and in my friends and family by adding fresh organic vegetables and cold-pressed juice to their diet. So I was just obsessed with making this product. Because if you think about the options that people have for beverages, soda, processed juice, beer, wine, milk, energy drinks, now non-dairy, which I love for other people, but like the non-dairy drinks, the Oatly's and the Calafias. But most of the drinks that people are buying, the soda and the beer, the wine, they're all like acid-forming, toxic products, right? Added sugars, poisons. So for me, the idea that we could create something convenient for someone that had natural energy-boosting characteristics, immune-boosting properties, micronutrients, phytonutrients, that's what drove me. You know, what would happen is, you know, my lead investor from Kleiner Perkins, you know, would tell me what I needed to do, right? And the board would tell me what I needed to do. And I was like, okay. And they're like, Doug, you got your seed round. You're going to need to raise like 10 or $20 million series A. And I was like, okay, so how do I do that? And they go, well, there's different investors. You're probably not going to get your angel investor who wrote you a $25,000 check to participate. You know, funds have these different stages. And I became a student of Silicon Valley venture. And then I don't know how other people pitch because I didn't sit in on their pitches, but I probably was a little different than the, you know, the 20 year old coming out of Y Combinator. And I was probably different than, you know, the MBA coming out of a warden or Harvard or Northwestern or Stanford, but I just did my thing. And I think that the authenticity of the vision of the mission of myself and the product is what raised the money. I was merely the conduit. Well, you were quite a conduit and it was obviously quite an idea that had a lot of people very excited. And so you are are raising all this money. You've had success. You're the one who conceived of it. You're the one who founded it. You're the one who ran it. But a time came when you were no longer the CEO and and you told Simon Hill in in your interview with him on his great Plant Proof podcast, which I really highly recommend folks listening to if you haven't already heard that episode with Doug, that they brought in an outsider to become the CEO. So what happened there? And what were the circumstances that led to the evolution of this company from a founder-led company to having somebody coming in from a large beverage company to become the CEO? I know that is a consequence of personal imbalance. I was working too hard, too many days. I wasn't meditating enough. And there was a weak point when the company had $100 million in the bank and the board with the greatest intention said, hey, we think we can get the former COO 
of Koch to leave his present position as president of Campbell Soup running their Bolthouse Carrot Division and come and be your partner. And you can design the trains, you can handle the PR and the marketing, and he'll run it like a business to scale it, like he's running a billion dollar business today. And it's really hard. And I looked at it and I had no conflict with my board pretty much ever. And I hate to think of myself as gullible, but in hindsight, I should have said, oh, that's great. You know, nice guy, like let him be an advisor, let him be a board member or something. If you think we need more help scaling, you know, let's bring in a COO or various parts. And I just took the bait and I don't have any regrets because my life is incredible now, but that was not the right move for me or for the company. But I did it. And, you know, once you make a decision like that, there is no turning back. And if there's any founders who are listening to this podcast, when a founder gives up control to a CEO, the world changes for them, sometimes better, sometimes worse. For me, it didn't work out. And this all predated the Bloomberg assault on the company. Is that right? Yeah, that was probably six months before it. So this event happened. So let me, we don't need to relive this, but essentially a, a Bloomberg journalist went on a crusade against the company trying to suggest that it was like smoke and mirrors as opposed to a product that people really loved. And I'm wondering what you think would have happened had you still been in the CEO spot. Because tell me if the mythology is wrong, but the mythology is that the Bloomberg article led to the decline in the fall of Juicero. So tell me, do you think that's right? And if it is right, would it have been different if you were still the CEO? Well, I do think so. I think what I would have done with Bloomberg, which I did with you know, pretty much any press, is I would take them under the kimono. And I would share everything that I was doing and that the company was doing. So to me, I did a lot of one-on-one skeptic to believer right in the process. That's where the money came from, taking people who had money and skepticism around investing and exposing them to my vision, my energy our product and the market and tell them the whole story. And I was extremely successful in doing that. And here you get someone who had a different view of the world, didn't live the lifestyle, couldn't articulate the vision well, and didn't want to take them under the kimono. So as opposed to having like I look at the New York Times article and I say it was snarky, but it wasn't bad. And we showed everyone everything. And I took what could have been bad and made it neutral. And in the case of Bloomberg, it went from neutral to terrible. And so I think my gravitas, my knowledge, my passion, my intention, like, the what Bloomberg got wrong was 
that we're a company that wanted to make it easier for people to live healthy lifestyles. And in the beginning, it's expensive to live a healthy lifestyle. Organic produce costs more than you know, conventional produce, and all produce costs more than processed, subsidized you know, animal products and breads and corn products. And so we just wanted to do that. And there was a reason, like every decision that we made about the cost of the machine, like when they would say the machine costs $700, now it costs 400, that's a lot of money. Well, we were not making any money on the machine. We were selling the machines at cost, but that's what it costs to make that level of precise engineering. You know, there are some people out there that would, you know, mock, oh, Wi-Fi connected juicer. Well, now everything is connected. In 2013, when I made that decision, almost 10 years ago, the reason I did that was for food safety and food quality. Because if someone were to take a normal product that says, use by date, January 1, and they were to drink it, you know, eat it or drink it, on January 15th or January 30th, that doesn't matter. May not taste as good. We were dealing with fresh raw produce. And in 1997, Adwala had raw juice and people drank that raw juice that had E. coli 0157H7 and they died. So for me, if there was anything that would have killed Juicero, it wasn't going to be some snarky journalist at Bloomberg. It would have been a food safety crisis of someone getting sick or, or killed. Like, that's what I thought. So let me ask you then, why was the article effective in, in creating the downfall of this company that had been flying so high? So you know, that same journalist at the time who no longer works for Bloomberg, but at the time, she was also running these very negative articles against other companies, including what was then called Hampton Creek and is, is now called Eat Just. But, you know, her, her basic argument uh, against Juicero was, yeah, you know, you say it's this great feat of, of electrical engineering and so on, but, you know, you can squeeze as much with your bare hands. And so when you then went out and talked, this article came out, you told your customers, hey, if you, know, if you want to return it, you can. And apparently, only 3% of your customers actually decided to return it. Most of them did like the convenience of having this entire service where they had this fresh juice available to them and the packs coming to them. And they liked the aspect about getting text messages, letting them know when their vegetables were close to expiration so they can make sure to utilize them. Like There were a lot of benefits associated with this thing. So if only 3% of the customers returned their juice heroes, what was it then that made this article so potent that led to the downfall? Like, why was it that the company ceased to exist if it wasn't, you know, this article? What happened? I think that for one, Bloomberg really had no reason to be writing about Juicero. We're not a public company. We weren't a public company. We weren't on their their normal tracking. The only reason why they wrote the article on Hampton Creek and on Juicero is to get clicks and to get fame and the angles. So the reason why the Bloomberg article was effective was because Juicero was a target because of our success. And then it all depends, like how far is someone willing to stretch the truth? So the Bloomberg 
and had a very clear bias and intention of moving the market, getting a CEO fired, getting a stock to go up. It was very like insidious what they were doing and what they were trying to do. And so they were very misleading in what they were saying, their reporting. And then because of all of the characters, right, in it, the Google Ventures, the Campbell Soup, me, you know, it's juice, it got some attention. And then the fact that they squeezed the pack, they created a video where, you know, basically squeezing a pack by hand, there would be a problem if you couldn't squeeze the pack by hand because the produce that was in it was already shredded. Scientifically documented, there was no more than 20% of free liquid, aka juice, in the pack that was the byproduct of the cutting and shredding. And 80% was just chunks of, of produce. You know, imagine, Paul, if you were to take bubble wrap, you know, that comes with little electronics, you could pop each one, pop, pop, pop like a kid. But if you were to take a sheet of bubble wrap and fold it into six inch squares and put it between the palms of your hands and you tried to press it, you wouldn't be able to pop even one bubble. If you were to take the same six inch squares and you were to wring them like a towel, it would be going pop, 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 pop. So the mechanics of squeezing and wringing a pack by hand versus using two plates in a mechanical process where you're just exerting force, the human hand is like evolved over billions of years and has incredible you know, flexibility. You couldn't build a hand-squeezing manual part to make a press for anything near $700. Like you'd have to have a robotic arm, you know, to do something like that. So the whole notion was just ridiculous, but the video was so well done to make it look like you could do it by hand. And they only showed in the two minute video, 20 seconds of squeezing it by hand and the rest, you know, just smoke and mirrors. I don't want to squeeze anything for 90 seconds, which is how long I think they did it in that video. Seems like a, a pain to me to have to squeeze for that long. And I guess the point that I would make is one that I've heard you make elsewhere, which is that there are some people who want to fly Southwest economy from New York to LA. There's other people who want to fly first class and there's other people who want to pr fly private. And all of those things get you from New York to LA. It's just, you know, the more you pay, the more convenience and luxury you have. And that was essentially what the first iterations of Juicero were. You know, you're going to pay for the convenience of having this machine cold press the vegetables for you. And you're going to get the other associated benefits that we already talked about. So I guess this just leads me back to my question. Like, what happened? Did, did Bloomberg article dry up new customers for the company? Like, what actually was the mechanism by which this led to the downfall of the company? Because if it didn't cause your existing customers, you know, to have a mutiny against you? Was it new customers that you lost? Like what actually happened that led to the decision to shut this thing down? I was no longer on the board or working for the company when the decision was made. 
to pull the plug. So I'm only speculating. Had you sold shares at that point? At that point, I was all in and wanting you know this thing to grow. What happened is I was speaking out privately about how we were handling this. No one liked that. You seem like a disgruntled founder at that point. At some point when I felt that I could no longer be effective and my time wasn't being valued, I fully left you know, the company. You left your, your governance role in the company and you weren't any longer receiving like a salary and you believed in the company. I mean, you say you didn't sell any shares. It's not like you tried to sell secondary shares. Like you went down with the ship essentially. Right. I think what, you know, if I'm speculating what happened, you know, from being, you know, bird's eye view, the Bloomberg article became a meme. And then the company became a meme of Silicon Valley excess. And it became an easy target because no one was defending it, right? No one was defending it. It was just like a punching bag where people were dumping on it, where for me, I would say, I would have accused Bloomberg of libel. And the Bloomberg article said, Juicero feeling the squeeze, investors unhappy. And they're like, smoking gun comment came from an anonymous investor, right? And since when do investors hide behind the cloak of anonymity? And what Bloomberg did was they went to the investor and they went to many of investors, if not all of our investors that would speak to them and said, hey, you know what? Juicero's a fraud. Doug's a charlatan. Did you know you could squeeze the pack by hand? We're writing this expose, et cetera. And they got one dumb, naive, inexperienced person to speak to them. And the quote that they got was, if I knew that Doug was hawking bags of juice, we never would have met with him. And then Bloomberg writes the headline, do Sarah feeling the squeeze investors unhappy? Such garbage. I will say, Doug, I reread the article recently while uh, preparing for this. And there was a follow-up though, where the investor additionally said, I think the company is going to do well and I'm backing them. Like, so it wasn't even all negative. Like, the, there was a negative comment in there, but the, it wasn't from an investor who was trying to jump ship. I mean, the, the whole point is they conned and misled an investor. And they don't need, they don't need, like, this isn't a trial. There's no judge and jury. This is bullshit media, right? In this case, the journalist is the judge and the jury. Well, the journalist and whoever their editor is are, are the judge and the jury here. And the prosecutor. And the prosecutor. Right. They get to do it all with no transparency, in context, out of context, et cetera. So what happened is then there were articles, you know, in hundreds of other publications, and no one had the truth. Like no one had the truth. I wanted to have a attorney contact Bloomberg and put a inquiry to hold all of the the data that was used for the testing, the interviews, the part to see how far they stretched the truth in order to create their narrative, et cetera. Because I think like, I don't think it was honest. But what happened is once that article came out, and then there were hundreds of other articles, we went from being the darling 
to like a joke. It was just a joke. And then no one wants to fund a joke. It was mainly the impact on the investment community then that you think the article was or that it, that it created that cascade effect. 100%. So how did you handle that, Doug? Like on a personal level, you went from being a media darling to, in your words, being a joke. You know, you've commented elsewhere, you felt like you were getting eviscerated in the media. You went from being in the limelight to now being, you know, essentially turned into like a pariah in the investment community. So on a personal level, like what was this like for you and how did you handle that type of stress? Well, I used the time of not working at Juicero to get back in balance. So I started to work out again. I started to meditate again. I started to travel. I spent time with friends. And, you know, there was a a definitive stage of grieving. And there was also the need to, like, inquire and do a postmortem to see what did I do right, what did I do wrong, you know, what were my identified mistakes. And from an investment perspective, Ducera was a disaster, right? People put money in and they got back, you know, a fraction of it when they decided to shut down the company and return capital to investors, right? And sell the assets. From almost all other metrics, Ducera was a great success. From an entrepreneurial journey for me, it was a great success. I went from running a juice bar to running a high-tech Silicon Valley precision agriculture company. We shipped over a million packs of the Juicero product, thousands of machines, B2B, B2C. We were growing 20% month over month. The people who had the product were using it 9.2 times a week. So we had very low churn. Like all of our metrics were successful. Like if no one knew how much money we raised, right? And we were just this company. We would have launched our version two product. We would have gained more customers and the company would still be there. I still think the company, you know, has great legs. You know, if the people who bought it, you know, decide to relaunch it, taking into consideration, you know, some of the lessons learned. So the version two product that you're referring to would have been a, a lower cost $200 version. So in the same $200. $200. So you went from 700 to 400 and then you're saying you would have gone to 200 So it's kind of like the Tesla strategy of creating like the Roadster and then all of these different models that per- get progressively. Oh, God forbid. Wait, wait, Paul, do not do any comparison. Because when I said we were like following the Tesla strategy, the headline was, you know, Doug compares himself to Elon Musk. <laughs> well, okay. I will not compare you to Elon Musk, uh, but you know you you were uh, engaged in a strategy where you were creating a high end product going to a low end. So, look, Paul, when I worked for Best Buy, right along the way, and I was doing some consulting work for Best Buy, you know, back in the early two thousands, on the marketing side, a forty inch flat screen plasma TV was $35,000. Today, you could buy a 40-inch flat screen LED, LCD TV today in Target for $149. You know, I was was actually looking at um, something that Tim Urban tweeted recently where he showed a 1991 Radio Shack ad. There were 15 different 
pieces of equipment, like a calculator and a tape recorder and a computer and uh, all these things. There's 15 different things that they were advertising in this 1991 Radio Shack ad. And, you know, all of them were, you know, somewhere between 50 to several hundred dollars. And now every single thing, all 15 of the items in that ad from 1991 are in your pocket, all of them. And it, you know, it's incredible to see just the, the pace of progress that technological advancements have brought to bringing down the cost of, of these various technologies. But I want to ask you, you know, you mentioned a moment ago, you know, if the people who own it, you know, they want to resurrect it and try and, and learn from some of the mistakes. What are the mistakes that you think? Like if you had to go back and do the Juicero experience over, what are those lessons learned that you're referring to that you think would be beneficial to those who are trying to replicate the company again? I think for one, avoid the media, right? Just avoid the media because it, it didn't really help. It hurt more than it helped. I think, really? So you think like Oprah, Gwyneth Paltrow, they hurt more than helped? I think that there was enough word of mouth and enough community of people who were buying it that the company could have been successful in grassroots. Like we started in San Francisco and LA, and then we added 13 other states, and then we were moving to go national on the product. And, you know, people, the net promoter score, and I don't remember exactly what it is, was really high. Like people who had it loved it and shared it. And today I've got a much bigger following at Doug Evans on Instagram than I did when I was running Juicero. So I had no connection with our customers um, there. We weren't using social. We were kind of following this strategy and protocol of Silicon Valley, big tech. And the reality was we had no business in that category. Like we should have been promoting and using the information along consumer products that could scale. So one of your lessons learned then you would say, you know, embrace more social media, direct contact with potential customers rather than going through the more mainstream media. I presume another one of your lessons is that you would not have relinquished the CEO spot. Are there other lessons that you think would be valuable for people who may be starting their own companies in the space? Or even if any of the people who are involved with Juicero are, are, they, are listening and thinking that they might want to resurrect this thing? Like, are there any other things that you would offer given your hindsight? I think that starting with the manufacturing plant, we had a pilot plant that was 10,000 square feet. And we jumped from 10,000 square feet to 111,000 square feet. And the main reason we did that was it's really hard to move a plant and move equipment and downtime, et cetera. And that was way too big of a jump. So we moved out of the 10,000 square foot plant before we needed to. And we moved into a plant that was way too big. And even though we were producing like 50,000 packs a month, you know, which the plant was capable of producing a million packs a month. So I think if we would have grown a little bit slower, we could have handled things a lot better. And, you know, you get a big plant and then all of a sudden you increase the burn. And that was not like at Organic Avenue, we literally blew the walls 
off of our first plant, right? By, you know, running three and a half shifts per day to maximize the square footage and the usage. And so I think that if we were running it more towards a regular company and and like you didn't have the capital, you wouldn't have built a big plant. So that was, I wouldn't have done that. I definitely would not do that now. Would you have raised as much money as you did then? Had the company had a little bit more capital, the fact that there was bad press would have had still, the company still would have had a substantial run rate and could have gotten through it. So I probably, I look at that and saying the capital wasn't the problem. I wasn't personally concerned with dilution or my part. I just wanted to make sure that the company could hire the talent that we needed and have the resources to execute. So I still would have raised that amount of capital and, you know, if not more, because you needed, you know, when you're doing, had we ordered like first batch instead of being in the single digits, if we would have ordered 20,000, 30,000 units, price would have been dropped precipitously, right? Just by doing that. But then we would have had all this inventory tied up and, you know, you don't know. So these decisions, you know, were, are tricky, but the capital, you know, would have given you the runway and to hire the talent. And so I don't have a problem with the capital. I have a problem with, you know, some of what we did with the capital. Well, let's fast forward a bit, Doug. So uh, Juicero goes by the wayside, something that you had built. You talked a little bit about the resilience that you had to have in order to withstand that type of an onslaught in the press. But fast forward to today, because you now are the former CEO of Juicero, but there is life after that downfall. So you had a very successful, you had a very successful exit with Organic Avenue. You had an unsuccessful ending to Juicero. But that's not the final chapter for you. So what have you been doing since and what are you doing now? So after Juicero, I decided to take some time and move to the desert. And in the course of the desert, being here, I love hot springs. I love raw food. I love sprouts. And so I started to sprout. I realized that sprouts could feed the world, that every problem you know, that was exposed with Juicero actually is eliminated or alleviated with sprouts. So just think about this. Sprouts, if you were to go buy sprouts in your local health food store, it's $5 a serving. If you grow them on your own, it's 50 cents. Juicero didn't have economic advantage. Like the cost of a Juicero juice at $7 was the same price of going to the, the juice bar. Juice and fresh produce has like a weak shelf life. Seeds that you use for sprouting have theoretically an indefinite shelf life. Not only that, but Doug, I, I gotta just challenge you. I, I haven't done the economics, but I doubt that I'm paying 50 cents a serving. I can't imagine it because I bought this pack of seeds for very little money and it's producing a huge amount. Like per serving, it's gotta be less than 50 cents, I think. It depends on the varietal. Like certain seeds are more money. Broccoli seeds are more money than mung bean seeds or lentil seeds or garbanzo seeds. So there's a nuance. But the insight that I had where originally I was growing 
alfalfa and mung bean. And now I grow alfalfa, azuki, arugula, radish, clover, broccoli, chia, flax, all sorts of lentils, all sorts of peas, hemp. Like it's extraordinary the variety. And the insight that I had was every benefit of the whole food plant based diet can be achieved by eating sprouts. That sprouts on a macro level aren't this garnish, aren't these seeds, but sprouts are in fact vegetables. And every single sprout contains every single amino acid for protein. They contain them in various levels and they contain antioxidants, prebiotics, probiotics, bioflavonoids. Like sprouts are incredible from a nutrition perspective. And that, I don't know if you agree with this, but I really feel strongly that you're better off getting your nutrition from whole food plants than from vitamins and supplements. So that the idea that if you need more folate or more protein or more vitamin B6, or you can actually get those from eating sprouts, very powerful. And then the third part, which is the most mind-boggling part, sprouts are medicine. They are absolute medicine. And there's more than 2,500 peer-reviewed published papers on broccoli sprouts alone and sulforaphane and the impact that sulforaphane can have on killing cancer cells, on creating heat shock protein to reduce the symptoms of autism, how they open up the NRF2 pathways for strengthening the immune system and the ability to block viruses, that sprouts, I don't know if you know my friends Robbie and Cyrus from Mastering Diabetes, but they have articulated very clearly that sprouts are the number one food for someone with type 1, type 1.5, type 2 diabetes because they are low sugar. So juice was high sugar. Sprouts are low sugar, high fiber, high protein. So sprouts are like the perfect food and they can be grown without soil, without sunshine, without fertilizer, without pesticides, that you could just take water, a jar, some seeds and grow them. So my whole life right now is about sharing the message of sprouts. I wrote the sprout book. The sprout book is now in its eighth printing. And I launched during COVID, which was a double-edged sword. One, I couldn't do one book signing. So everything on my tour got canceled. But sprouts really resonated with people who are staying at home, who need to eat, who want to be healthy. So, you know, the whole industry, since my book came out and the communication, you know, has just grown exponentially. So what I'm working on is just everything to make it easier for people to grow sprouts. I'm working with UC Santa Cruz on safety and science and biology and fungal, you know, working with Dr. Jed Fahey from Johns Hopkins University, who wrote the original pioneering broccoli sprout sulforaphane papers. I've got a fire in my belly. And if anyone wants to come under the kimono, I'm happy to share a little bit more privately. But right now, like the journey of being knocked off of the pedestal is to me 
like I wasn't on a pedestal. Like my life really didn't change. The difference of what I was doing at Organic Avenue versus Juicero, I was working. I was working every day. And my ego took a hit because like all of a sudden, I had never experienced Machiavellian behavior before. Like I'd been punched in the face. You know, I've had people say mean things, but I never experienced Machiavellian behavior. And that was shocking for me, but in a very meditative way, you know, I didn't take it personally. You know, I realized that shit like this happens to everybody and that by getting through this, I would be a better person, a better entrepreneur. And, you know, I have a unique education that I want to put back to work. That's really great. I, I admire your tenacity and your resilience in the face of so much adversity. So let me ask you, you're talking about being a better entrepreneur. So you uh, hinted that maybe if somebody wants to learn more, they can come under the kimono and see. But so is there a third act in Doug Evans' entrepreneurial journey? Paul, there was already a third act. And turns out my discovery of Wonder Valley Hot Springs turned into an incredible success already. So in the four years since I moved here, you know, we have hundreds of acres with hot springs. We have 12 houses and it's unbelievable. And the business is pretty much running itself. That's a really good thing. So that was a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the next act. But with Sprouts, I see enormous potential to make it easier for people. And I'm a product guy. In my core, I'm a product guy. So I like to build products and I'm in it, right? I wrote the book to publish my research. And now I love tinkering. I've got a lab, you know, I've got great people around and, you know, we're looking, how do you make it easier? How do you make it better and get into the nuance? Like today, when I say alfalfa seeds or mung beans, right? People think of a single sprout. There's hundreds of varieties of every type of vegetable. Just like, you know, I grew up on uh, red delicious apples and I go into Whole Foods today and I see 20 different types of apples. So the idea of kind of going deeper into the most nutritious food on the planet and making it mainstream and look, the, the communication level going on the Rich Roll podcast and the Simon Hill podcast, the Joe DeSanta podcast, like I went on Marianne Williamson's podcast, and most of your readers, you know, listeners may not know Marianne Williamson, but she ran for president against Trump and a spiritual leader. And her first podcast after she withdrew from the election was with me to talk about food equality and food justice because she sees sprouts as a means of helping to nourish people in challenged lower income food deserts where now they they could grow. I, did you see the John Lewis movie, They're Trying to Kill Us? I did. So sprouts are the remedy for that. Like I want to go hang out in Ferguson with John Lewis and, you know, get that community sprouting. That's on my agenda. All right. Very cool. So Doug, let me ask you, you've had quite a wild ride of highs and lows that few people will ever experience those highs or those lows, I think, that, that you have experienced. So it's been quite a wild ride. But let me ask you, are there any resources for entrepreneurs or want-to-be entrepreneurs out there that you would recommend that you think 
were useful for you in your own journey here? I would say the most valuable resource that an entrepreneur can do at any stage in their business, take 10 days and go do a Vipassana meditation. It's non-religious sect, non-denominational, and it's 10 days, no reading, writing, speaking, eye contact, or technology. So you check your phone in at the door, and for 10 days, you meditate, and you learn the basic thing is to observe your cravings, to observe what you're clinging to, and to observe what you have aversions to, and you find that in your body. And I've done that twice. And the goal isn't to get into this state of bliss or nirvana, but it's to be able to be in a state of equanimity so that you can respond to various situations in a thoughtful, practical, pragmatic way, not react impulsively. And that really, really, like, had I not done that meditation, I could have blew a gasket in these board meetings, you know, and instead I was just able to observe thoughtfully and maintain my composure. Also, feel good about being able to see that every lesson, every mistake was actually a success if, in fact, it could be turned into an identified mistake. Like you can make mistakes all day long. If you can identify the mistake and then learn from it, then that mistake was a good thing for you. That was an asset. So that was very effective. So I loved my Vipassana meditations. I think that nature is good. Like getting into nature is good. I won't talk about psychedelics on this podcast, but I think that you know a lot of positive work being done in the psychedelic world, not recreationally, but from a level of you know one-on-one counselor and treatment and controlled settings can be really, really helpful. You know, for people, you know, there's the books that you know you and I have read, the Think and Grow Riches and the greatest salesman in the world and the four agreements. But I think that being in silence and being with friends are really good. And, you know, that's why I reached out to you, Paul, because you're like, you're someone that I want to have in my life. Like I want to spend time with people like you, with people like Simon Hill, with people like Rich Roll and the people that are doing good things that are working, that are creative, that are entrepreneurial. That's great. There's a a podcast that I went on called Over the Wall by a very, very successful, you should get him on your podcast, actually. His name is Rob Lacasio. And Rob and I go back well over 20 years. He had the last IPO before the market collapsed in like 2000. And he created internet web chat. And when I met Rob before the IPO, he was just, you know, slugging away. Then the stock was like at $6 a share. And then it went as low as seven cents a share. And today, I don't know what it is today. It's probably $50, $60, $4 billion market cap. 
And Rob is like the second tenured, second longest running CEO of a founder CEO of a publicly traded company in America. You know, Rob knows my tenacity and that's what we spoke about. But because that's a reflection of who he is, like to go from seven cents a share, you know, where you could buy the company for a $2 million market cap and today has a $4 billion market cap. So things like that. But I think that, you know, your podcast, like every episode is just incredible. Like, Paul, you are the resource that I would recommend to not just to your listeners, because that's preaching to the choir, but to other people. Like, I'm excited to share more about what you're doing because you're grounded and your head is screwed on. Correct. Well, I really appreciate that, Doug. And more importantly, I appreciate everything you've done. As I mentioned, few people have the highs that you've had and few people have the lows that you've had. And again, I admire the resilience and the tenacity that you have shown through both of those. And I think it's a good lesson that anybody can learn, whether you want to start your own company or whether just in life in general. So I really appreciate that. And I, for one, am somebody who is very much looking forward to seeing what you do next. I know you've become quite an evangelical for Sprouts. You've uh, converted me, <laughs> that's for sure. I did Sprout about maybe 15, 20 years ago or so, but I don't remember why I stopped. But I am back into it now. Uh, you've persuaded me that Sprouts are very healthy. But most importantly for me is they are so time non-consuming and they take up so little space and so few inputs to make these fresh vegetables in your kitchen that I'm in on your Sprouts journey here with you too, man. And I appreciate all that you've done, all that you're doing. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. And uh, maybe we'll be chatting again about a potential future business relating to Sprouts. So we'll see. Terrific. And Paul, I will say the last thought that comes to mind is that a coach is a really good thing. A board or a forum is a really good thing. I just had a friend go through Savan B, um, her mastermind, just like 10, 12 people get together and her Instagram, just full disclosure, I'm married to her, but her Instagram is just S-I-V-A-N-B. And her work is getting people to shift from scarcity to abundance. And like, imagine being able to make decisions from an abundance consciousness as opposed to a scarcity consciousness. And so that's the consciousness that I'm in right now and being abundant and doing my thing. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, one more thing that you and I have in common is we're both married to people who are an inspiration to us. So I appreciate that very much, Doug. And thanks again. And I will be rooting for your continued success and whether it's the fourth or the fifth act or whatever it's going to be. Thank you so much, Paul. You're, you're an incredible human being and I'm, I'm grateful to have you in my life. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.